0: Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and for New York's Stranger Than Fiction series at the IFC Center. On this episode, I speak with the Israeli filmmaker, Denai Alon. Her new film, P.S. Jerusalem, is a first-person account about returning to the city of her childhood.
1: Filming in this city was an addiction. It brought me closer to who I thought I really was.
0: After living abroad for 17 years, Alain moved back to Jerusalem with her husband and three sons. She films their experiences over several years as they grapple with the city's tensions.
1: I think that part of the, the troubling experience of living in a place like Jerusalem is that you are categorized Um, You're categorized for this color of your skin. You're categorized for the words you speak. Today, if you just hold a camera in in Jerusalem and you're categorized as a left-wing demon that is out to destroy the state of Israel. So that idea of of being constantly categorized and constantly categorizing others is exhausting.
0: A key presence in the film is Denai's late father, Amma Salon, who died in 2009. Amos was an internationally known author who wrote articles and books about Israel's history. Here he is reflecting on the country in 1970. Nothing has really turned out uh, like the founding fathers of Israel had wished it to be. What was planned as a, uh, as a safe haven uh, in the end turned out to be a country engaged in almost perpetual war. Near the end of his life, Amos had become so disenchanted with Israel that he relocated to Italy and advised Anai to not move back. She's made a string of personal documentaries exploring political topics. Her film, Another Road Home, explored the life of the Palestinian man who had been her childhood caregiver. When she became a mother herself, she made a more lighthearted film about the practice of circumcision called Partly Private. It documented her own questions about whether to give her son a traditional Jewish bris. That film introduces her husband, Philippe, a French-Algerian Jew who figures prominently in P.S. Jerusalem. I reached Denai by Skype at her current home in Quebec. I started by asking her to explain for listeners who aren't familiar to describe her father, Amos.
1: Well, my father was uh, one of Israel's most um, acknowledged and respected journalists. Uh, He wrote for Ha'aretz. He had a weekly column in Ha'aretz before he started writing his own books. Actually, he wrote his own books all along, but he he had like a daytime job in in Ha'aretz for a really long time. And he was the commentator that basically gave... An analysis, a weekly analysis of what was going on politically, socially, and therefore he he made a name for himself, starting out with that, and simultaneously he wrote books about Israeli society that were very well respected. He wrote a book about Herzl. He wrote a book called The Israelis. He wrote a book called Jerusalem City of Mirrors. And the last book that he wrote, which was on the bestseller list of um, Israeli published books, was a book named The Pity of It All, which was the history of German Jews uh, up to World War II. Uh he also wrote, contributed to the New York Review of Books, uh, to The New Yorker at times, and was somewhat of a, of a voice that uh, represented uh, the liberal left in Israel.
0: Now, you describe in the film that your father was always so wrapped up in work that as a kid, you didn't always feel like uh, he had time for you.
1: As a child, yes. I think that that it was more, I tried to mingle the personal within the general context of what Jerusalem during the the 80s was like when I was growing up. So it, my house was a house that was constantly visited by international writers and diplomats and, and people that were passing through Jerusalem because they wanted to get a, a real feel for the place. So Our dinner table was often attended by all these very interesting guests that were always part both of our parents' social life as well as their working life. So it seemed like it was a constant laboratory of thought and ideas and um, and, and a constant movement that was connected to... To, to Jerusalem, to the politics of the time, to the politics of the world. So in that sense, I did feel um, many times that it was an unusual setting to grow up in, which was not the, 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 the familial uh, comfort that a child would need. Now, when you
0: started making films, your f- films have a lot of connections to, uh, to Israel did you feel like you were continuing in a tradition of of your father's?
1: No, because I think I was always very different from him, um, in the sense that my father was a rational intellectual with a profound romantic soul, so he wasn't just a dry intellectual um man of man of reason, uh, when you read his books there's there's a lot of passion and feeling in them um, but I always navigated to the, how the rational and the intellectual influence the familial and I always tried to find emotional connections to a very um rational way of thinking, and I think that that is where the conflict in my work arises or this constant tension between the rational and the emotional that don't necessarily have, um, uh, a common ground. I mean, they might have, uh, um, um, they might coexist under the same roof, but I think they're constantly fighting one another. So this, I would say that the, the, lots of the scenes in the film, um, are, are, are completely, um, I would say, laced with this tension that comes between the rational thought and the emotional desire to find home.
0: When did you leave Jerusalem as, as a young person, and, and what were your feelings about the city when you left?
1: I actually did leave in part because I needed to find my own path aside from my father. Because um, growing up in in Jerusalem, being the daughter of Amos Elon, which I continue to be till this day in certain circles, um, which I'm honored to be. I mean, it's 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 not something that haunts me like it used to be when I was uh, 20 years old. I needed to find my own voice, and and I found a way out when I got accepted to New York University Film School. For me, that was a real uh, personal breakthrough because it meant that I could find my own voice. And so I left with with a great deal of sadness, but at the same time, after my service in the Israeli army, I had so many questions about what I had done vis-a-vis my own personal beliefs and my parents' ideologies and beliefs and how those two outlooks impacted my behavior even for being part of a military service at the time that I had I was beginning to have problems with because it was the outburst of the first Intifada um, so that kind so, of so
0: what was your position when when you were doing your compulsory service well I
1: had a very um, I, I had a very I had to say pacifist job in the army. I was a liaison to United to the United Nations forces in Israel, uh, brought me in touch with an incredible group of uh, young people that ended up uh, doing their TOEFL exams and getting out of the army and going to study in American universities. So therefore I actually was part of that process and they got me out Um but we were getting these reports. I remember there was this big machine and this, I you remember how you would get reports and they were just kind of were part of like these hold um, pieces of paper. I don't know. They had holes on the side and just kind of come out like telegrams.
0: They teletype. Uh, teletype. Machines?
1: Exactly. And it, with reports of what was going, because we were, we were a, um, an, an office that would get um, that was dealing with communications. And so the reports coming from the territories were every few minutes there was just loads of reports on stone throwings and demonstrations and killings and just it just was to no end, and it was just part of 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 what was being pro what I was beginning to process and coming from a very liberal family that didn't believe in what was going on, and yet here I was feeling that I had to fulfill a certain duty, that began a whole series of questions vis-a-vis my own identity and who I was in relationship to that liberal left that made me feel obliged that I needed to serve my country.
0: So you went to New York and you wound up spending many years there, am I right?
1: Yes, uh, 17.
0: (laughs) So in the film, P.S. Jerusalem, you have two kids with a third on the way. You've been in New York for 17 years. You're now uh, married. And you decide you want to go back to Jerusalem. C- can you elaborate on those feelings of what you weren't getting out of New York and why you wanted to go to Jerusalem of all places?
1: Well, what I had left in Jerusalem was tremendous. Um, in a sense, I I also left During the first, um, during the beginning of the first negotiations with the Palestinians, 1993 in Jerusalem was a year where everybody seemed to have hope. And Jerusalem became a very exciting place because all of a sudden there were lots of crossovers between Ramallah and Jerusalem, and, and there was an international feeling to the city. At the same time, there was this looming feeling that this is not going to last. Um so I think that what I had left behind was our past in Jerusalem, together with all these um, realizations that I had after serving in the Israeli army and, and feeling completely torn up about it. And so here I had lived 17 years in New York, where I came to a great awakening. It had to do with Palestinian history. It had to do with information that I never received before, that I had to go and study myself and and understand how did that relate to everything I was taught as as a teenager. And often there was no correlation. And so I was amazed at at how how I could not have seen it. I was amazed at the prism in which I was viewing reality before I had left. So the desire to go back home was a really a desire also to to patch up a lot of that a lot of that um a lot of those questions and and conflicts that I had in the past and kind of kind of bring it to peace in a way. Um I was I always knew New York was 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 a temporary thing. It, it wasn't some a place where where I saw myself uh aging or I, I I don't, I was afraid to become that in New York because I thought it would, I I, I thought I would feel really lonely in, in the city. Um, and I missed the Middle East and I, I loved, um, my friends there. So I felt that I had left so much behind. And even though I knew that it had dramatically changed, there was a lot to go back to.
0: So I want to bring your husband into this because he figures prominently in PS Jerusalem. Can you describe who your husband is and where you were in your lives together when you were making this decision to go back to Jerusalem?
1: Well, my husband was is a Jew who was born in Algiers, but right very right after the independence, so basically had left at the age of 1 month and moved to Marseille and then to Paris and we both shared at that time when we met and and had our first children we both sh- shared a feeling of dislocation like we both had this i we both were uncomfortable with the certain sense of nationalism that we were almost rejected by he being an algerian growing up in france and i with all the realizations that i had vis-a-vis my past in israel and we really connected at that point. And I think he realized how important it was for me as a person to, to do this move and to go back. Um, so he identified with that. And he's also a bit of an adventurer. So he thought this, would, this was going to be a, a great experiment for him. So, so it, so, and he was very hopeful at, the, at first. And I think didn't quite carry the baggage that I had. And so I realized that when I went back with this kind of sort of baggage there was much more grounding me in this reality rather than him because he really had nothing to attach himself to.
0: You say when you left in 1993 it was a hopeful period in 2010 when you were going back even without being there I don't think anyone would characterize that as a as a hopeful period. So what what did you imagine you were going back to.
1: I was going back to the hand in hand school. That was my idea. I think that that. So describe what that children, school is. This is the school well, that your kids are in. The school is the school. I was and maybe you, you can identify with this, because when you have young children that are about to enter school, go into first grade, especially with your first child, the decision of the school is like <laughs> everything monumental, right? Um, that's why and I'm talking really to you want... from
0: Montclair, New Jersey right now.
1: <laughs> exactly. So I guess I was like a typical mother taping, taking my first son's, uh, First grade, even kindergarten, I would say so seriously. I still can't believe how much money I spent in Brooklyn on kindergarten, right? It's like, <laughs> But I think it goes into a, a young mother from New York uh, having her first child. And, and I think that I felt strongly about giving them something else, giving them something that was meaningful to me. It was the only thing that I knew how to do. It was more important than math lessons or language lessons, English language lessons. It was something that had to do with, I guess, a a certain kind of morality or values uh, that my child would have in the future. So when I was going back to Jerusalem, ironically, yes, the the place had changed dramatically, but such a school didn't exist in my past. It existed in the present. So on one hand, Jerusalem had become this incredibly racist environment that was no longer international and predominantly um, populated by ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox Jews. Um, And on the other hand, here was this school and this island of sanity that stood for everything that I believed in. So that held a a different kind of contradiction in it.
0: So the, the school educates both Jewish and Arab children, teaching them both Hebrew and Arabic.
1: It teaches them both Hebrew and Arabic, but it also does something more important. It teaches the other's religion and the other's narrative, um, national narrative. So on the same day that Israelis are commemorating Memorial Day and Independence Day, the Palestinian Arab children are commemorating Nakba and their own casualties. So it's the best right now that exists within a very restrained system. Of course, the school is part of the, well, it became part of the, of, of the um, ministry of education and the ministry of education has its eyes on the school that they do nothing wrong, that they don't um, say too much, that they don't go too far. So it's a very delicate path that the school is walking I think that what sustains them is the fact that the municipality is very proud of such a school, so they don't dare kind of meddle in what is actually going on within the four walls of the, of the classroom.
0: Now, one complication to your decision to go to Jerusalem is that your father, before he died, had given you a strong opinion about it. Can you describe that?
1: Uh, My father always made me feel that the most irrational step that I could make was to decide to take my family back to Israel. He rationally sold all his property in Jerusalem, made sure that I would never even have a base to return if I wanted to once my first son was born. I don't think he actually thought about it. I think he—he, he, I think this was the—the—the the, the emotional in him actually acting upon his rational thought.
0: And he was doing this what, in the early 2000s. Uh,
1: no, he actually did this um, in the mid 2000s, like 2005, 2006. This was at the height of suicide bombing in Jerusalem. Um, he was tired. He really didn't want. To, to have anything physical to do with the place, even though his mind kept on thinking and writing and, and engaging with, with, with Israel until, I think, two days before he died. Um, so, in this sense, he said, you would be crazy to go back, and he, and he told me that it would hurt him. That it, he would feel very um, worried and sad if I decided that this is where I wanted what I wanted to do.
0: So I take it, were you already kind of speaking out loud an an idea that you might want to go back?
1: I think I always spoke about it. I always spoke about the possibility. I I think I would not have had the courage to do so while he was alive because I knew how much it would hurt and worry him.
0: We'll be back with more from Denai Elan discussing P.S. Jerusalem after the break. Our friends at the TIFF Podcast Network have a new program you should check out. It's called TIFF Long Take, coming to you from Toronto's TIFF Bell Lightbox. Each episode interviews a key figure in the film world. Here's a recent conversation with Franklin Leonard, founder of The Blacklist, known for discovering Hollywood's hottest screenplays.
1: If for whatever reason
0: you decided that your life goal was to get a script on the blacklist, I would write a a script. Probably it would be a biopic, but not a, like a sort of cradle to grave biopic. It would start at the begin, like at the sort of inflection point moment of a person's life. Like mm-hmm. everything before this is obvious and everything after it's obvious. But we're gonna tell this story that sort of lay that goes to the core of who this person is. It would be likely about a woman. Uh, Or if it is about a man, it's about a man who has a very close relationship, a very complicated relationship with a three-dimensionally drawn woman. Uh, And it would be somebody about whom someone between the ages of 25 and 45 has some substantial nostalgia uh, for whatever reason. So like coming off of this past year, I would say that someone should write a David Bowie biopic. like Do the David Bowie, Iman love story. Mm -hmm. That would be interesting. You can subscribe to TIFF Long Take for free on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, when you got to Jerusalem, did you have an idea that you would make a personal documentary um, uh, tracking your family's experience there?
1: I was commissioned to make a film about Jerusalem, and at first I thought I was going to take my father's book on Jerusalem, Jerusalem City of Mirrors, and I was going to turn it into a uh, cinematic uh, contemporary portrait of Jerusalem today. And that was just setting myself up to total failure because <laughs> it, it's it's a wonderful book. And, and I, I don't think you can c- contribute more to what has already been done. On top of it, I think that Jerusalem, as a place, is a tremendously difficult uh, location to film, because whenever you turn your camera on, it it's kind of the 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 image just burns. I mean, first of all, you can't appropriate what you're what what you're seeing in the sense that it means something else to anybody who watches it, and it's so symbolic that, in a sense, it's beyond. Um, cinematic meaning in a way. It's, it's really um, in the, for the most parts, it's also an incredibly ugly city today because of all the new construction. And it's so bright and the light is so harsh that every time I turned my camera on, I said, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. And I tried to come back to the broadcaster and convince them to Um, support a different film about Jerusalem. In fact, uh, I I tried to sell them the Patriarch film, and I said, this is a great story. This will be much better to do about Jerusalem. And Since you want a movie about Jerusalem, I'll give you this. And uh, they said, no, and we want this film about Jerusalem. And I think six months into our stay or into our experience there, I felt that I was really in over my head. I really didn't want to make this film. I didn't want to look at myself. I didn't want to look at my family. I didn't want to look at the city. It was excruciatingly painful to shoot, not to mention to edit. Um, I don't think I've ever had such an emotional experience editing anything in my life.
0: In the film, while Denai feels conflicted, her husband, Philippe, increasingly feels negative about their experience.
1: Sorry, but being part of this place as a Jew, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm part
0: of their, 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 their building, you know? It's like being part of the, the, the stones that they put into the new settlements. We are. We
1: are helping this country. We are helping something, a devil. We are helping a devil.
0: I want to ask about uh, filming with your family because your, your previous film, partly private, which uh, is a little bit more lighthearted about your decision with your husband on whether or not to uh, circumcise uh, your son. And then it's an exploration of of circumcision. But in the course of that film, its strength is just how personal it is. And you're opening up your own marriage to um, to these conversations for the camera and and I'm wondering, in your family, you know, after the experience of making that film, was it easier or harder to keep filming these intimate conversations?
1: With Philippe, it was a lot harder because he was really put on the spot. And I knew that filming him at very delicate moments where he was tremendously upset would, would really challenge that moment. Um, and, but he was signed on to do this. He, But it. a lot of times it, it really took a lot to pick up that camera and, and film him. Um, even though I knew that that initial antagonism of like, don't pick up the camera right now because this is not the right moment would pass. It was still a very hard thing to do. I think my, the funniest thing that my son said to me once I finished the film, he's like, mom, we've never, we don't see you with the camera anymore. I think they just kind of got used to seeing me with the camera. And it was interesting to get them to accept what the camera meant, because when they were very young, they had no idea what this meant. So I could capture Tristan and Andre in ways that were playful and, and very beautiful But once they realized that they're being recorded, then they started just being silly. So I had to find different ways to film them and get that same authentic, um, I would say, experience that I had when they were very young. And that's when I discovered that if I put a wireless mic on them, they could not understand what, what that meant. So they would say these most incredible things, and I would be filming all the time. So I often got the sound of what they were saying, and was able to to recreate certain scenes that had that same magic.
0: I think there's a certain tribe of documentary filmmakers, like a Ross McElwee or Jennifer Fox, mm-hmm. who have made a career out of filming their families, and you know, you've now made a couple films in that vein. And, and and I wonder if you see yourself as part of that group.
1: Oh, wow. The reason I started filming my family was because within the context of being an Israeli Jew, I felt that I would only be able to show these inherent contradictions of what it was like to grow up liberal and yet then feel obliged to serve in the Israeli army and just all those or my father in another road home who kind of gets really worried when he knows he's going to visit a Palestinian family that supports Hamas possibly and are they suicide bombers or not and I think that that these kind of uh, truths were truths that I saw within my own family, and I didn't think that I were was able to catch them outside of of my own of my own experience. And I was more seeking that sort of truth about who we are, and less my own personal experience with my family. Because in all these films, I still I always try to collect, connect the larger political and social implication of who we are in relationship to where we come from.
0: I hope I'm not giving away anything by the film to to say that you don't live in Jerusalem anymore. And since this film is so much about a quest for finding a place to belong, I wonder where you are in that journey now.
1: I don't know if it will be surprising for you to hear that I'm exactly at the same point. It still boils up in me all the time. Uh, Is that this, to say this... that you that
0: you still think <laughs> you'd like to go back to Jerusalem
1: every day, every day? But I think that 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 shared by anyone else part. in your family. No, <laughs> I don't know. No, 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 no. Now I, you uh, know.
0: I mean, I I know Israelis who live in New York or or other places who feel that they don't have as much purpose being outside of of Israel even though it's very difficult to be in Israel when they're in Israel there is a sense of meaning to every conversation that doesn't feel as alive when you're in New York talking about like the new restaurant that opened in Williamsburg
1: you know i i think there are places in the world right they just happen to be right now maybe I'm not even sure if Israel still has that same... I I don't know if it's always going to remain that way. And it depends who you are talking to. Um, But I think that after the Second World War, the generation that came after um, grew up with a real sense that they had to have a sense of purpose in their life. This is how we were brought up to be. Um, In Israel in the 70s and in the 80s, people, you, you, I I cannot remember a day where I was not being brought up to be a better citizen, a better person, that I was going to make the world better. And here, this one catastrophe was built on the catastrophe of another people whose history was erased. So that circumstance alone created, uh, I think a pool of people that, we're constantly looking for meaning for a sense of purpose for a sense of belonging in the world in relationship to themselves in relationship to what had happened in Europe what had happened in in the arab in arab countries so that's very much a part of of what Israel is about and also palestine in in my mind so often you have a lot more in common with Israelis and Palestinians that you would have with Irish Americans or Irish Ita- or Italians or whoever. Um, so I think that's a, I don't know if that's a generational feeling, um, but definitely living there and especially in Jerusalem, and I would say that more about Jerusalem than about Tel Aviv for me is that it's similar to New York in the sense that you really, something strong is happening there. In New York, something strong is happening. That, that's why we stay there for so long. That's why we keep on going back to those places, because we're drawn to that sense of drama, that sense of important discourse, and want our lives to, to be fulfilled by that. Um, I think that's what's the most beautiful about the place.
0: I want to thank Danai for speaking with me. Her film, P.S. Jerusalem, opened this past week at New York's Lincoln Plaza Cinema. It comes to iTunes and VOD in May. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, series producer, Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer, Kyle Murphy, web designer, Cross Strategy, marketing coordinator, Sarah Modo, social media master Jordan Smith, and executive producer Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. If you're in New York, check out our screening series, Stranger Than Fiction, on Tuesday nights at IFC Center. The spring season begins April 18th. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at Pure.
1: Nonfiction